Our Bible reading today is taken from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28, verses 16 to 20, which can be found on page 1000 of the Bible. (coughs) Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for Lucy. Thank you for your hand upon her life, your call upon her life and her heart for you. Would you continue to release in her and through her your grace and your goodness and enable us to see more clearly, a little bit more clearly this morning, who you are in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, it's great to be here, and um, it's nice that Tim's moved just down the road. We were, uh, Tim was in one of our partner churches in Winchester, so we got to know each other years ago when I took over at WTC, and it's an exciting prospect for us that St. Swithin's might become uh, also affiliated with WTC, that some of you might come and study. We'd love to welcome you and um, have you as part of our student body. And I was thinking maybe we could, I could come back and do a theology day or something for Bath churches, something like that. Um, Anyway, so it's great to re-establish the connection with Tim and through him with you guys. Um, I have been trained as a theologian of doctrine uh, called a systematic theologian, which I think always sounds incredibly dull, but is in fact one of the best subjects on the planet. Um, And so I was delighted when Tim said, could you come and do our talk on Trinity Sunday? because it's something that I, it's a topic that I'm just really fascinated by, and I hope today to bring out some of the sort of interesting and complex and fascinating um, aspects of the God who we worship, who has revealed himself to us as three in one. It's a very, very complex concept for us. It doesn't really naturally make sense to any of us, so don't worry if it doesn't make sense to you, because you are in very good company with the rest of the church. And if someone has told you that they've wrapped it all up, then I would be a little bit cautious about how they might have done that. Um, I thought about titling this talk today, God is not a fidget spinner. I don't know if any of you have ever 
come across um, the idea that we're always looking for pictures, aren't we, to try and work out who is God as this three in one. It's not easy to explain, and from very little we try to teach our children about the Trinity. So we've probably all heard pictures, haven't we, like um, a shamrock or an egg or a three-legged stool. Is that familiar with anyone? Um, some, one of my students said a Twix. I was like, oh, okay, never heard that before. Um, ice, water, and steam. Sun, warmth, and light. All those kind of things. Has anyone read The Shack? Anyone read The Shack? Yeah. So that's a whole novel uh, about how, what, how do we understand who God is as three persons, but also as one being. Irenaeus, who was a second century bishop, had a famous saying that the Son and the Spirit are the two hands of the Father. That was his picture for the Trinity. Augustine, some of you might be aware, Augustine of Hippo, who was a great father of the church, he had another way of understanding the Trinity through looking at different aspects of the mind um, and the, the memory, the understanding, and the will. That might sound a bit complicated to you. It is a bit complicated. <laughs> you might have seen art that depicts the Trinity. I've got some pictures um, that you may have seen. I don't know, something like that. Anyone seen things like that? There are a few examples that I've chosen that you might have seen. You might have seen diagrams if you've ever studied uh, have you seen that one? That's quite spooky, <laughs> isn't it? Uh, yes, and that's an also very interesting depiction of how the Trinity might relate to one another. We might come back to that. You might have seen diagrams um, if you've ever studied. Have you ever seen anything like that? Um, there's the supposedly what we think in the West, and then there's another diagram which shows you what they think in the East. You might... Imagine that that looks a bit simplistic, and it is. So, or you may have seen a symbol, something like that, a Celtic symbol. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to imagine in our heads this reality that God is three and God is one. And we're not quite sure how we can completely make sense of it, but we need to try in some form, and that's what we're going to do today together, because Trinitarian thought, or doctrine, if you like, is actually all about how we think about God, how we conceptualize him in our minds, and then how we worship him with our hearts, and that's where I want to go with this today. Who is God? How do we talk about him? Can we visualize him? This is what the author of the shack, I think it's Paul Young, isn't it, was doing in his book. Who is he for us? What do we do with this three-in-one God? And it is actually at the heart of the Christian revelation. The Trinitarian God is the reality that sets us apart from every other faith. Okay? So, Losky 
He, Vladimir Lossky, he was a Russian Orthodox theologian of the last century, and he wrote this, The Trinity is the unshakable foundation of all religious thought, of all piety, of all spiritual life, of all experience. That's a pretty amazing claim, isn't it? It is the Trinity that we seek in seeking God when we search for the fullness of being, for the end and meaning of existence. So it's worth us applying a bit of time and energy to understanding this. People like to say, I don't know if you've heard this, that there is no doctrine of the Trinity in the Bible. Have you ever heard anything like that? Maybe that's just in those of us who've had to do academic theology. There's no doctrine of the Trinity in the Bible, in the Jewish or the Christian scriptures. Now, it's true that the word Trinity is not used in the Bible. But what is also true is that the way that we understand God as a triune being is through being faithful to Scripture and to the biblical story of God. And that actually is even true of the Old Testament in some way. Um, so let's start there. The Trinity is not present as such, but we'll come back to this a bit later, in the Old Testament. God does not reveal himself as triune in the Old Testament. But the Jewish and the Christian understanding of God is based on the revelation, on the truth, that God is known as a personal God, isn't it? God is known as a personal God. God participates in history and communicates with people. God reveals himself to us in ways that we can understand. In the Old Testament, God shows himself to his people in ways that they're already beginning to understand. It's like it's looking forward to the time when he's going to come in the Son, in Jesus, as the full revelation to show us who he is. We know that God is spirit, but God reveals himself through angels, through the prophets, and through figures who we're not exactly sure who they are. Did Jacob wrestle with an angel, or did he wrestle with God? You'll hear people kind of interchanging those two things, because we're not sure. He wrestled with the Lord somehow. But you see what I mean? We have these representatives of God in people, in ways that God comes. He has this sort of incarnational and Trinitarian beginnings in the Old Testament. You also have the Spirit mentioned all over the Old Testament. And then you have this extraordinary figure called Wisdom in Proverbs 8 and 9, who is a woman, personified as a woman, Wisdom. And nobody's quite sure whether Wisdom is kind of synonymous with the Logos, with the Son who then comes, or whether wisdom's the same as the Spirit. So early church thinkers thought maybe they would sort of in swap between the two, or wisdom's kind of the feminine form of the Logos, or maybe wisdom's the Spirit. But wisdom is born in the being of God. 
and comes to be and then is this personal being. So it sounds very much like either the Son or the Spirit, doesn't she? So the Old Testament prefigures the Trinity in many ways. You have these distinct figures who come from God but who are God at the same time and that's what the Trinity is. The Jewish faith is based on the fact though that there is one God. But here, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, the Shema. It's what they would have recited every day. The Lord your God is one. And this is still true because the Lord, who the God whom we worship, is that one God. He still is one. So we're still worshiping that same God who the Jews proclaim is one. But it's kind of got complicated <laughs> because Jesus turns up and makes claims that he is God. Jesus comes to earth and he says, I'm God. But the Jews know that Yahweh is God. So Jesus has turned up and said that he's God. And then not only, it's not like Yahweh has suddenly just shrunk his whole self into this one man because this one man then relates to Yahweh as his father. So one has become two. And that is a very big challenge for the Jews, as we know. Not for Gentiles, because we don't have that background in the same way. And the thing about Jesus is that he says that he's God. The things that he does, people like to say, oh, well, Jesus behaved like he was God. But actually, it's not the miracles and the raising people from the dead, because People had done stuff like that in the Old Testament. Moses and Elijah and Elisha had all had, had all been able to do extraordinary things with creation. And Elijah and Elisha both raised people from the dead. And they had multiplication miracles. You can go and look at all of that in 1 and 2 Kings. So in fact, it wasn't that that made them think, oh, he must be God because he's doing miracles. They thought he was God because he told them he was God. He knew he was God, and he told them in all his teaching, in everything that he did. But there was a difference about the miracles, the, the way that Jesus did them. And I think that the difference is that what you see in Jesus is he had mastery over creation. He had mastery over death. He had mastery over sin, and he had mastery over the demons. That was what marked him out. He did the miracles. He did the same miracles in a different way. He was the Lord, the curious. And then he talks about the spirit, and he promises that he's going to leave the spirit with them, who's going to guide them into all truth and teach them everything that Jesus had taught them. And so the spirit becomes Emmanuel, God with us. And that's where we live now. So now there is a third person involved, and that's the Spirit. Jesus speaks to two others, to, two, to whom he's clearly related, and who were clearly related to him. But they're also one with him. 
his Father and his Spirit. Jesus said, the Father and I are one, and whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus is telling them that they are one, but they all relate to one another. So the Trinity is rooted in relationship. Our relationship with God, the way that God has chosen to reveal himself to us, and then our worship of him and our devotion to him. It actually takes the church a long time to pin down what you would call a doctrine of the Trinity, of how to think Trinitarianly, and to articulate this in a more fleshed out way, probably about three to four hundred years which is not surprising. But as we had in our reading, Trinitarian phrases are used in the early church. In Matthew 28, at the end of 2 Corinthians 13, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit Spirit be with us all forevermore. That's the end of 2 Corinthians 13. And so we have Trinitarian phrases. In the early church, people were baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Polycarp, who was martyred at the end of his life as he was about to be killed. I glorify thee, he's talking about the Father, through the eternal and heavenly high priest, Jesus Christ, thy beloved servant, through whom be glory to thee with him and the Holy Spirit, both now and unto the ages to come. And he was an early Christian martyr. The Christians knew God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They knew that the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. Now that may sound incredibly simple to you. What a simple formula. But that is what is at the heart of the Trinity. The Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. They have unity and they have distinction. Whenever we talk about the three persons of the Trinity, we always talk about distinction and not difference. There's no difference between them because they're all the one substance of God. But they are distinct from one another. Tertullian spoke about the Trinity. He used that word, Trinitas. And later on, they talked about the Trinity as having one substance and three persons. Now, that word persons is kind of strange because I think when we use it, we think people, don't we? And that's why, and then when we read the shack, we think people even more, perhaps. But it, didn't actually, it doesn't actually mean that, that's slightly misleading. And they chose the word person in Greek and in Latin because they weren't quite sure what else to call the three persons of the Trinity. And so Augustine says, when it's asked three what, human speech labors under great difficulty. Nevertheless, three persons has been said not in order to say just that, but to avoid saying nothing. So persons is our best option with our language to try and say who God is. And the reason it's good and it's better to say three than saying three somethings is because it tells us that God is personal. 
And it tells us about the story in the Bible where God, the, the three, relates to himself as three, but is also one. So as I said in the beginning, we're trying to get our heads around something that actually is quite difficult. But I just want to give you one theological maxim, because I found this really helpful in my own thinking about the Trinity. And we're not quite sure exactly where this comes from. It's, some, it's probably rooted in Augustine's reflections on the Trinity. But it helps us to think through what, how we relate to God. I don't know if you've ever sort of self-consciously prayed to one person of the Trinity rather than another. Have you done that? Just nod? or do you, Does it go through your head? Actually, I think this prayer's to the Father. Or actually, I think this prayer's to the Son. And maybe you wouldn't even know why to or how to explain that, but something in your spirit has said, maybe I'm going to call on the Spirit for this. Or maybe I'll call on the Son. Or maybe I'll call on the Father. And then other people are quite rigid. Oh, no, you pray um, in the Spirit through the Father, through the Son to the Father, yes? As we know in Ephesians. But there's no need to be quite so worried about who are we praying to because remember the father is god the son is god and the holy spirit is god so we can pray to all three we can pray to one knowing that we're praying to the other two and this early trinitarian maxim helps us i think because it says that all the works of the trinity in this world are undivided so just think about that for a second. Everything that God does in this world is the work of all three persons of the Trinity. All the works of God in this world are undivided. So when the Spirit is here, the Father and the Son are here. When the Son is here, the Father and the Spirit are here. When we pray to the Father, we know that, of course, we're praying in the Spirit through the Son because there is no access to him otherwise. Okay? But there's a second part to the phrase, and it says this, the distinction and order of the persons, those three persons that we talk about, not people, being preserved. And the reason we preserve that distinction is because that's how God has revealed himself to us. That's how he's told us who he is, that he's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I think that God reveals himself to us as Trinity and comes to us as Trinity because we are inherently relational beings. We're people, we're creatures who thrive in families. It doesn't matter what shape that family is, but it needs to look like a loving community of other human beings, who, which is a home. If we are deprived of that in the world, it hurts us, it damages us. And if we have it, it heals us and it helps us. And God knows that. And so when he comes, because his heart is for you, that's who he is. His whole heart, the whole heart of God is for humanity to bring us to himself, to bind us to himself, to love us unconditionally. What's the best way I could do that? I know. I will bring them into a home. 
and I'll bring them into my home through someone who looks like them. You see how gracious God is and how beautiful he is and how much he thinks of us first. And so God comes to us as Trinity when in fact God is still one and he's still one big God. And so this helps us to think about it. So we preserve the distinction and the order of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And that doesn't mean order as in who comes first and who's more important. We'll come to that. But it just means that we can distinguish between the persons of God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the the older I get as a Christian, the more I think that that is God's gift to us. And that's his way of drawing out the best in us that he gives us options of who we relate to. And it's okay if you don't relate to a father God for a while and if you just relate to your brother Jesus. And it's okay if you just relate to the spirit for a while. If We're all going to get there in the end. We really are. If we've started somewhere with God. There are three ways of thinking about God, which the early church said, let's not do this. And they're still right. And one of them is that we would split up the three and forget that he's one. And sometimes people have a bit of an issue with the shack because of that, because are we leading everyone to think that it's three people always relating to each other? And we mustn't lose sight of the fact that he's still one He's still one, and there's still one substance. It's not just three people relating to one another. It isn't even that. The second one is modalism, which is that spooky picture with the eyes. So really, I'm, I'm a mum, which I love being. I'm a principal, and I'm a lecturer. But actually, I'm just one person appearing in different modes. That's modalism. So we need to keep the distinction between the three and not conflate them all to one. And the last one is important, especially in our worlds, in our churches, and that's subordinationism. And one of those paintings, I can't can't recall uh, at the moment, that shows the son kneeling before the father. You remember that one. And sometimes people instinctively think, well, the son is, is, you know, serves the father. The son submits the father. The son kind of does what he's told. But the son only does that while he's on earth as a human being, as the son. He is not subordinate to the father because he is one substance with the father and he is God. So there isn't a sequence of the father at the top and then the two following him. There's no lowest and least in the Trinity. I remember when um, one of our boys, I don't think it was Harry actually, I think it was the brother under him, went off to Sunday school and then came running out to me and said, Mummy, I know what the Trinity is now. So I said, really? Gosh, that's a very good Sunday school teacher. I said, what's that then? He said, it's one big God and two little ones. (laughs) I was like, okay. All three heresies at once, nearly. We're all Trinitarian heretics in some form, really honestly. We all move in and out of thinking about this God as Trinity. And we're, we're all, no one's going to pin this down. That's not what we're trying to do. 
We're trying to get our heads and our hearts around this God who's revealed himself to us as three in one to give us a way into him. That's what he's done. That's his best gift to us, is here. Here I am to make a way for you to come into me. And then for me to indwell you. That's a phenomenal concept that the God we worship wants to live inside of us. So this Trinitarian God, with all his power and all his majesty and all his beauty and all his perfection, wants to live inside of you and me with all our imperfections and all our rubbish and all our rejections of him and all our misunderstandings. But he's so kind and he's so gracious and he's so compassionate that that is actually all he wants to do. So I hope that you know him. And if you feel you don't know him, I hope that today and coming into St. Swithin's today has kindled something in your heart of, but I'd love to. I'd love to know him. And if you do want to know him or you want to know more, what you need to know today is that he's here. And he'd love to know you. And he's made himself accessible to you. I'm just going to finish with a few readings. And a couple of readings and then a prayer. (coughs) The first one is from Gregory of Nyssa a fourth-century bishop on the Trinity. He who has conceived of the Father and has conceived of him by himself, the Father by himself, has also received the Son into his mind. And having received the Son, he doesn't divide the Spirit from the Son, but forms an image in himself that is a mixing of the three in the same manner. And if someone mentions the Spirit alone, he has by this very confession received him of whom the Spirit is. And since the Spirit is of God, is of Christ and of God, as Paul says, just as he who grasps onto one end of a chain draws along with it the other end as well, so he who draws the Spirit, as the prophet says, through him also drags along together the Son, and the Father. And if anyone truly grasps hold of the Son, he shall hold him on two sides, the one where he draws together his Father to himself, and the other where he draws his own spirit. And this from C.S. Lewis. An ordinary simple Christian kneels down to say his prayers. He's trying to get into touch with God, But if he is a Christian, he knows that what is prompting him to pray is also God. God, so to speak, inside him. But he also knows that all his real knowledge of God comes through Christ, the man who was God, that Christ is standing beside him, helping him to pray, praying for him. You see what's happening? God is the thing to which he's praying, the goal he's trying to reach. God is also the thing inside him which is pushing him on, the motive power. And God is also the road or bridge along which he is being pushed to that goal. 
so that the whole threefold life of the three personal being is actually going on in that ordinary little bedroom where an ordinary man is saying his prayers. And let me pray for you. This is one of the, m- my favorite prayers. It's a Trinitarian blessing by Jared Kelly. May God, in whose furnace faith is forged, in whose being beauty breathes, at whose dawning darkness flees, shine on you. May the Father, whose love for you beats with a rhythm time itself can't stop, whose presence in your exile is the promise of home, whose certainties are deeper than the cellars of your city, whose breath is life, breathe on you. May the Son, whose story is a mirror of your own, who has journeyed into darkness to find a key to your prison, who has dived the deepest oceans to find pearls for your wisdom, who has looked into your heart and found a beauty worth the battle, who has written your name on a white stone carved in secret, hold you. And may the spirit who has waited millennia to fill you, who shaped the word that moved the wind of the morning that conceived you, who holds the earth on which you stand as an artist holds a candle, who fully knows you, wholly own you. So may God, the faithful father, God, the scarred son, God, the sculpting spirit, journey with you. Amen. Great, thank you, Lucy. Um, 